This is The Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or feint to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question-and-answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing 1 million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings, everybody, uh, and welcome back to another episode of The Global Gambit. It's Piotr, your host, speaking as always. Today we're being brought to you actually by Twitter Spaces, the, the second instalment after our great discussion uh, recently on Turkey and its relationship with the Ukrainian conflict. Uh, but today we're going to be focusing on Iran. And obviously there have been a, a large amount of activity circulating around, uh, given the um, the Iranian deal uh, and the negotiations associated with that, which have, for all intents and purposes, uh, stalled quite a lot, unfortunately. And given the, the events in Ukraine, the, the role of Russia has actually been even more, shall we say, integral than it has been in the past. Uh, joining me today, actually, to discuss these points and more uh, is, is is Jason Brodsky. He is um, someone I've had the pleasure of actually engaging with in the past, uh, and I'm very excited to be uh, to be hosting him here. He is the um, director of the United Against uh, Nuclear Iran, uh, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization intent on preventing Iran from fulfilling its ambition to obtain nuclear weaponry. Uh, and he is also an expert on the Middle East more broadly. I guess you would say an Iranian wonk, to quote his uh, to quote his Twitter bio. Um, but Jason, very glad to have you with us, and uh, thanks for joining the the Global Gambit. It's great to be with you, Pierre. Awesome. Uh, so kicking off, I think I think it'd be great for the audience uh, listening uh, live, but also in the podcast, if you could take us through sort of the most recent developments in the past, say, month, a couple of weeks, where we are at the moment. Uh, with the deal or not. Um, and then we can maybe dive into some specific details after that. Sure. Uh, and good afternoon or good evening uh, to everyone wherever you are. Uh, so I think that the Iran nuclear negotiations have stalled for some time due to a variety of factors. For Over the last year or so, the Iranian leadership has been pursuing a pretty consistent strategy 
of stalling in the nuclear talks to advance its nuclear program under the cover of negotiations, and in the process, producing a shorter and weaker deal for the international community in an attempt to search for greater concessions or uh, that would make the agreement stronger from its perspective in the form of non-nuclear sanctions relief. And uh, Iran feels that uh, it can continue uh, this uh, gambit because it has paid no price for uh, its escalations and its nuclear program and uh, a variety of other regional provocations. And it always assumes that the U.S. and the European uh, and the E3, I should say, will remain at the table. And uh, this has been a very dangerous dynamic because we have had this engagement-heavy, pressure-light dynamic that's been going on over the last year. And uh, Iran has been allowed to tread water economically uh, by virtue of high oil prices and lax U.S. enforcement of sanctions. Uh, And uh, this has really just enabled it to continue to drag its feet in uh, coming to a conclusion uh, in uh, the Vienna talks. So that's kind of the state of play uh, as I see it. Thanks very much for that, Jason. Um, Brief overview there. But um... I I think it'd be fair to say that you're more on the, um, you've been, I think, from our previous uh, conversations, you're a little bit less on the proponent of the the deal and you're more feeling that maximum pressure does get sort of results in in that way. So I was just wondering if you could take us through a little bit more. If, if you think that the given the 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 stalls that we've seen, um, but also because Biden um, will be very soon visiting the Middle East, he'll be visiting Israel. What do you think that may do, if anything, for the for the deal? Or, or is it essentially, you know, as a dodo and, and dead as a dodo? Well, I think that the deal is dead at the moment. It's not functioning, but but it hasn't been buried yet. Uh, and that's where we are. Uh, the uh, U.S. and the E3 are still keeping the door open, despite the fact that uh, the recent proximity talks in Doha failed. Uh, the U.S. thought it was a wasted opportunity and uh, questioned why Iran even came to the talks. But that was a curious comment from my perspective uh, in that Iran has every reason to keep this process going for as long as possible because it only loses if, this, if the talks break down. And it wants to avoid snapback sanctions. And so it's going to say and do enough to earn another meeting, but not an agreement uh, at this stage. And this has been the play for months on end. And the U.S. and the E3 have done nothing to change its calculations. And you're right. I am a critic of the Iran nuclear deal. I do not support a return to the JCPOA. Uh, My organization and uh, and myself as an analyst uh, feel that the U.S. needs a more durable Iran policy. Right now, uh, we have a JCPOA policy not an Iran policy, and that needs to change. Iran is not just a nuclear file. There are uh, missile and drone proliferation, 
and terrorism uh, and human rights abuses that we all need to contend with simultaneously. Iran has the ability and has demonstrated an ability to increase its own uh, leverage and provocations in the region while simultaneously uh, sitting at the negotiating table. Unfortunately, the United States and the European and the E3 have not been able to demonstrate that ability. And uh, that's going to need to change. And uh, I think that if we're able to force a choice for the regime between its nuclear program and its survival, uh, I think that that will be uh, something that will help diplomacy, not hinder it. No, I think it's always very important to distinguish between the regime and the people. The uh, the current regime, I do not think, is reflective of what the Iranian people want. Um, but unfortunately, we're in this tr- tricky situation where uh, they are, you know, wanting to to proliferate uh, and obtain a, a nuclear weapon of some form, um, while sort of continuing to try and hold out against the sanctions as much as possible. But that being said, uh, you know, I've seen articles in mainstream media in the past week, a uh, couple of weeks, insinuating that, you know, Biden, the Biden administration may be willing to actually reduce the amount of sanctions on the uh, on the uh, country because of what's happening with Ukraine. Uh, and this is something we've seen also inferred towards Venezuela. So you sort of got this, uh, the lesser of two evils in this sense is sort of, you know, the, the Americans are actually considering reducing the sanctions because of the uh, the events of the Russian invasion and that Putin is, you know, the worst of the two, so to speak. Do you think that that's a, a wise option or you don't or you, you think we should continue and just what continue on through the inflationary pressure? How how do you think that we should try and uh, ensure a, uh, the energy crisis doesn't get too too significant, um, but whilst also continuing to pressure the uh, the regime. Well, I don't think that Iran is the answer to the energy crisis that uh, the international community is facing. Iran, uh, flooding Iran with money and funds uh, may be satisfying as a near-term strategy to some European partners and powers, but as a long-term strategy, it's great. It's very dangerous. You have a, an Iranian system that is taking Uh, multiple Europeans hostage. Uh, As we speak, uh, yesterday there was news of uh, of Belgian uh, nationals being arrested in Iran, uh, one in March, I believe, uh, but it was just being revealed. We have also, Iran is not going to be putting back the funds that it receives as a result of sanctions relief uh, into the Iranian economy to better the life of the Iranian people. I'd love that to be the case, but it's just not. And uh, it's going to be using it to uh, enhance its partner, terror partner and proxy network in the region. And uh, that's the reality we have to deal with. It's not the Iran we want it to be, but it's we have to deal with the Iran as it is, not the way we want it to be. And you are right that we need to separate the Iranian regime from the, the from the Iranian people who strive for a better life. And I think the international community needs to do a better job at uh, helping the Iranian people achieve those aspirations. We're not, you know, we're not, in, we're not going to employing a, you know, invasion of Iran as a regime change strategy. That's not what anyone's arguing, but they need to do a better job at uh, empowering the Iranian people when there are protests to create an option to ensure internet access for the brave Iranian protesters is one example. The U.S. needs to really ramp up, and so does the E3 for that matter, its public diplomacy as it relates to the Islamic Republic. Not just a statement, but we need to be 
publicizing and revealing the corruption, the mismanagement. And I think that it should be employing what the U.S. should be employing, what it's doing with Ukraine in the Iranian context a little more, declassifying uh, the sources of wealth of Iranian leaders and the uh, top regime officials in order to uh, provide information to the Iranian people that they need to uh, uh, make their uh, decisions as to um, the country and moving forward. So I want to switch gears a little bit and think about this Biden as an individual, but also the UN, uh, the Iranian envoy that he appointed in the former Robert Malley. Uh, He was the former president um, of Crisis Group, uh, where I was for a time, and and actually got to engage with him and, and listen to his 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 approach or his demeanor as an individual. I'm curious for your take, because this was something I asked uh, Barbara Slavin of the Atlantic Council when she discussed around. Uh, what's your opinion of him as the sort of lead negotiator um, representing the state's perspective on this file? Do you think he has been effective, incompetent? Uh, well, I'm just curious for your take specifically on, on Rob. I think it's important to understand how the U.S. government works. Rob is one of many people involved in this process. It's an interagency process. It's not just Rob Malley as the only person running Iran policy in the United States government. So I think that we need to be clear here as to uh, the the complexity of the U.S. policymaking process. It's beyond one individual. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, Rob and I share mutual friends. Uh, I think he's, you know, I've heard he's a great person. I don't know him personally, uh, but, and I don't like to talk about individuals, uh, but I I, I criticize policy and I criticize strategy. And right now the U.S. strategy is wanting. If, If, you know, the U.S. government is going to change course and Rob is going to be the implementer of that strategy. Great. Uh, unfortunately, the strategy of endless engagement with the Iranian regime has really not at maximum deference, really. Iran has been allowed to dominate the manner, the timing, uh, and a whole range of other variables as it relates to these negotiations. It has refused to meet directly with U.S. negotiators despite wanting U.S. sanctions relief. And I know that has put our European allies in a very uncomfortable position because they're running uh, running around relaying messages. And uh, that's been out outrageous. And, and, and so this has been part of the problem with the strategy. And if, you know, U.S. is going to be prepared to, to adopt a more coercive approach to the negotiations, that is something that I can see myself supporting. But if we're going to be sitting here just waiting for the Iranians, uh, that is not a strategy. And uh, I think that you're seeing mounting criticism, not only for, from Republicans, but also some, from some very powerful, influential Democrats the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, uh, the, uh, there was a vote a few months ago uh, in the Senate, a non-binding vote, but it was a very important one, where you had this U.S. Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, who was never a who was an opponent of the original JCPOA, but nevertheless, given his position, his vote uh, in favor of a more aggressive uh, Iran strategy is very important. And I'm sure the Biden administration took note of that approach. So uh, that's what I would like to see. I'd like to see a comprehensive approach by the U.S., not merely this JCPOA waiting game that we've been involved in for the last year or so. And if it's Rob who's implementing that, great. If it's another person who's implementing implementing that, that's also great. So I think 
you know, too much in the Iran debate, we're focused on individuals. I like to focus more on the policy. And, and so that's what I would say in response to that question. That's fair enough. I, uh, I always like to throw a little bit of a curveball my, uh, with my podcasts just to see how <laughs> you, um, well, you know, it's, um, particularly because, you know, it is a very sensitive file and everybody comes with it with a slightly different uh, perspective. But no, I appreciate that for sure. Um, I think we should always focus more on the policy and less with the individuals uh, as, we're, as we're currently seeing in the UK government. Um, but um, <laughs> on that point, I just wanted to, again, from the micro or the individual to the macro. I want to also have your perspective on Iranian-Russo relations, particularly, obviously. Again, um, I've had a bit of a running theme at the moment this season is, is is driven by the Ukrainian war. What's your current view of the Iranian-Russian relationship? And aside from just the, um, the deal, the negotiations, but in the context of, say, this autocratic versus democratic um, divergence that we're seeing appear across the globe and Iran's sort of willingness to try and support Russia where it can in the right ways, or the signing of Iran with the Venezuelans in this strategical cooperation or the um, the Iranian-Chinese strategical partnership, which came into implementation phase. I think the Iranians announced it as, what, last month. Just a curious for your perspective on sort of Iran's broader relationship, first with Russia, but also some of the other autonomous states that, uh, that it, it sort of engages with. Sure. I, I think that that the Iranian-Russian relationship is very complex. I think that people tend to view it as an, you know, a, a, the Iranian-Russian and also Chinese relationship as an access and alliance. Uh, I think it's more complicated than that. Uh, Iran and Russia have a very troubled history full of distrust, uh, dating back to the Treaty of Turkmenchai. Uh, and so uh, this is this is this is a, a, a very fraught relationship. But I think there is something important to realize about the incumbent Iranian leadership, that all of that ancient is really ancient history. Paired to where we are today, the current Iranian leadership in the form of Ayatollah Khamenei and Iran's president prioritizes Russian relations. Those who are critics in the Iranian, uh, in the Iranian uh, body politic of uh, the Russian relationship are more in the ref- or more what are known as reformists uh, and uh, other uh, players, and they have no power uh, in the Iranian system. So they might write an article, might criticize the Russians in the media, but they don't have actual decision-making power uh, in the Iranian system right now. And uh, that's important to note. So that's what I would say on Russia. Uh, As it relates to China, another very complex relationship. China is another country that Iran, that some tend to view Iran and China as having this alliance or access. I I don't think, I think it's more complicated, again, like Russia, uh, than that. China will hedge. Uh, China has important partnerships in the Gulf uh, with Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. um, And so uh, I think that they're they're not going to go into a complete alliance with Iran and will seek to balance their relationships in that regard. 
Uh, and uh, China also has an interest in stability in the Middle East. But ironically, China has been uh, a defender of Iran and a excuser of Iran when it comes to its malign non-nuclear activities in the region. For example, uh, you know, China has been a block on the UN Security Council for holding Iran accountable. So has Russia uh, to a large extent. Uh, and, you know, China's own interest in maintaining that stability, uh, Iran imperils with their drone attacks, their missile attacks. Uh, China has uh, energy uh, interests in the region, and all of that is threatened by Iran's behavior. So uh, that that that's important to note. So it's a very complicated relationship uh, in that regard. On Venezuela. Uh, Iran and Venezuela have a, ve- a relationship that stretches back to for years. Um, particularly, it was nurtured under the uh, uh, under uh, Hugo Chavez and uh, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad when they were president. It's predicated on an anti-imperialist mindset and ideology. Uh, Iran views Venezuela as a permissive environment for Quds force operations and for it to uh, be able to uh, use. Uh, Venezuela as a platform for uh, Hezbollah operations as well, soft power. Iran has a network, and so does Hezbollah for that matter, of uh, mosques and cultural centers and a whole range of activities down there that help feed this anti-imperialism uh, uh, mindset and Khomeiniism mindset as well. Uh, so that's uh, that's on Venezuela. And, you know, it's very dangerous for U.S. interests because uh Colombia's, uh, I think it's now former president, uh, revealed last year that uh, Iranian intelligence were very active in the area, particularly with um, missiles and uh, drone proliferation. And so this is uh, a a very, should be of deep concern to the United States. It's uh, nothing to dismiss. Uh, I know U.S. Southern Command has been eyeing Iran's uh, influence uh, in South America warily. And uh, so so that's uh, important not to overlook. And for that matter, I would add to that equation Iran's influence in Africa as well. Uh, So uh, in all of these places, uh, Iran is employing a similar strategy. Fascinating. Really fascinating. Thank you very much for that uh, comprehensive answer on, uh, I don't know, a couple of, well, particularly Venezuela, which you might not think given the uh, the geographical distance. Uh, well, that, that, that is, is the case. Um, look forward to listening to that back. All right, Jason. So just building actually on that aspect of the, um, of the Iranian Venezuelan, but also just sort of broader Iranian geopolitical, geostrategic, geoeconomic ambitions. In the past week and a half or so, we had the, uh, the BRICS summit. Uh, hosted by the Chinese. Um, and what was quite notable was this apparent interest from the Iranians and I think the Argentinians to actually try and join the uh, the, the coalition. For, the, for, for our listeners, the BRICS was first and foremost an academic term consisting of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and then South Africa a little bit later. Uh, and so the BRICS constitutes the first letter of their names. Um, and since then, they've sort of been seen to be not living up to the expectations because uh, most uh, three of them have not, well, have dissipated whilst China and India have 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 has have succeeded as the main emerging economies. So, Iran's sort of interest in this in, in this group, um, in this merry men, merry band of of <laughs> merry men, or whatever the expression is. What's your take on that? Do, is, do you think that that's something that Iran would be welcomed into, perhaps like a, a an autocratic sort of? Rose Club, or is it a little bit of a far-fetched uh, pipe dream for them at the, at the moment? 
Well, I think that Iran uh, seeks to be a member of these kinds of regional blocs. As you know, it uh, started a succession process to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. It uses these groups to increase its diplomatic cloud and the bilateral partnerships that it has in its foreign policy. Uh, so uh, it's not surprising that it would seek to become a member of, of BRICS uh, there. Uh, I think that uh, we have to also look at Russia's view here as well, uh, because uh, Russia uh, has in recent months uh, talked about the uh, prospect of forming like an alternative G8 uh, of uh, those who oppose sanctions. Uh, and uh, so Iran would fit into that kind of structure. So uh, I do think Iran is trying to um, cement its uh, partnerships in this regard. And, and thus, uh, you know, a BRICS bid would uh, not be surprising. Interesting. I, I begin to wonder what the name of this sort of anti-sanctions uh, bunch could be called, like the sort of the A8, or the S8. Or, I'm not sure. We need to work. Yeah, yeah, probably something along those lines. It's, <laughs> you know, Iranian, uh, Iranian officials have spoken about it as well, for that matter. So it's not, you know, it's not something to dismiss, but, uh, you know, that, that they, they, they do seek to create a block uh, of that. Nature. No, I, 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 I certainly don't think we should ever dismiss these sorts of things. You know, uh, people have have snubbed their noses at things which have actually become quite, um, quite competent. And uh, that includes in the areas of, shall we say, non-democratic states. And, and this leads me to um, another country, actually, that I'm just curious for your take on because they've been they're a very strong player in the Middle East, um, which is Turkey. Um, and we had a conversation with Emre Uzlu of, um, uh, of Turkish origin about his personal perspective of the Erdogan regime and Turkey's sort of neo-Ottomanism aspiration, so to speak, or just its, its sort of desire to be a regional hegemon. Sure. Uh, and I'm aware of the relationship of Turkey to Qatar and Iran to Lebanon and, and the sort of the many moving chess pieces in the region. But what would you say about the Iranian-Turkish relationship uh, at the moment? Is it is it not, is it a non-starter or, or is there a little bit more to it in your perspective? Very, very complicated and quite fraught uh, at the moment. Uh, Iran and Turkey's uh, relationship has been under strain on a variety of fronts over water disputes, uh, over uh, Iran's targeting of Israelis uh, uh, in Turkey as well, which I hope to discuss with you as well later in the program. Uh, and uh, that all that obviously is a hit for uh, Turkish tourism. Uh, and so uh, the Turkish government at one point postponed uh, Iran's foreign minister's visit uh, to a later date because of those security issues. Uh, there are also feuds in Iraq with Iran-backed militias partnering with the PKK to target Turkish forces there. There are strains in Syria. Uh, so uh, there are a variety of uh, strains in the relationship. But nevertheless, over the the course of many years, the Turkish government, despite episodic publications of busting Iranian networks, uh, has also provided a permissive environment for Iranian intelligence operatives to kidnap, target, harm Iranian dissidents, foreign nationals who were visiting, and this is a very serious issue. Uh, so it's uh, you know, our Turkey uh, has obviously a border with shares a border with Iran. So uh, you know, there's a natural uh, link there. But uh, there are uh, some very big strains right now in the relationship. Well, I, I definitely want to to 
circle back to the the point you wanted to raise given what you just mentioned about turkey and and uh, and border disputes or just borders it, it makes me think of afghanistan because what happened in august of last year was well it was massive for uh, not just middle eastern pol- geopolitics but global geopolitics and turkey was touted as being one of the primary potential stabilizers. I think they were one of the main forces that took over the Kabul airport in the aftermath of the uh, American and Western withdrawal. Um, But obviously, Iran's uh, big, sizable border with Afghanistan and the notable, I think it was, uh, large arrays of military equipment, American military equipment that were videoed. I think you even shared one of the videos on Twitter about... I remember that. Yeah, 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 it was you. Uh, who shared this very notable video footage of, um, you know, American Western equipment being driven and shifted into Iranian territory. Could you take us through a little bit more Iran's overview of of the Afghan situation and maybe uh, link in some of its positioning with other countries in the region, including, say, Turkey, if that makes sense? Well, I think that Iran uh, right now is uh, also experiencing strains with Afghanistan. Uh, You know, Before Afghanistan collapsed uh, and the Taliban uh, took back over, uh, Iran was playing a double game. It was preserving formal relations with Afghan's government uh, in Kabul, uh, which was the Western-supported government. But at the same time, it was building relations with the Taliban, especially in Mashhad, and uh, nurturing them and playing a long game, calculating that the U.S. would withdraw at some point. And uh, it would need to uh, be able to have a functioning relationship with uh, potentially the Taliban. And uh, that gamble uh, paid off to a certain extent because now uh, of who's in control. Uh, But Iran and the Taliban, as you know, have a fraught history. Uh, In 1998, Iranian diplomats were killed. Uh, in uh, Afghanistan. And so there is a long history of mistrust there. Uh, Relations have improved, but they are still tense. Uh, There are border clashes routinely. And uh, so so this is not exactly uh, a tight partnership, uh, but I would not underestimate the connections and the networks of um, uh, the IRGC's uh, Quds Force commander, Ismail Ghani, because he spent years uh, in uh, the Afghanistan realm and uh, is an expert in that regard of, uh, of what happens in Afghanistan and has a great uh, network of, uh, of uh, supporters and uh, uh, partners there. So uh, I think that uh, Iran, uh, you know, seeks to, uh, is, is, is watch, uh, watching warily what's happening. Very interesting. Um, I, I, I covered and followed the Afghan situation in depth when it happened you know it it just well it it pains me to see what is happening there continuously and in iran with its uh with the uh continued oppression of women's rights and so much of that um is just it's deplorable um but i wanted to bring it back round to also Soleimani um and what happened uh in what very early 2020 um and also just sort of bringing in also the iraqi you know develop in that regard and so just for your for your take uh the the iranians have been quite influential in the um 
in the Iraqi government, you know, supporting sort of pro-Iranian groups, so to speak. What about that? What's your what's your opinion on that and what's going on there? And also just with the sort of how uh, their relationship has changed given Soleimani's, uh, you know, assassination what, two, two, two and a half years ago. Right. Well, Soleimani, uh, his demise was another earthquake uh, for the Iranian regime because he had a singular ability to manipulate, manage and meddle uh, in uh, Iraqi politics, especially. Uh, the uh, His death has loosened Iran's ability uh, to manage those uh, militias, uh, has strain the connections at some po- at some points. Uh, his successor, Ismail Ghani, lacks Soleimani's command of Arabic. Instead of Soleimani being uh, the person running point on managing Iran's axis of resistance, there are multiple players right now filling the void in Iran's leadership in that regard. And I think we have to look at figures like uh, this Hezbollah's secretary general, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, who's taken on a wider ranging uh, portfolio uh, in Iraq, in Yemen, uh, and uh, also in Syria. So uh, that, that, and I'd also point to the late host, not the late, but the, the for, uh, former uh, head of uh, the IRGC's intelligence organization, Hossein Tayeb, who actually was gradually increasing the IRGC's intelligence organization's profile uh, in Iraq. He made a very rare and significant visit uh, to Iraq last summer, and uh, he was relaying instructions from the Iranian leadership at the time to increase attacks on U.S. forces, and uh, that's a very uh, that w- that was a very unusual role for uh, Tayeb to play. It's mostly in the past, that would have been handled by the Quds Force commander, like Qasem Soleimani. Uh, but uh, now, because of Ghani's weaknesses, uh, the Iranian regime has had to spread out the management, uh, especially in Iraq, of uh, its uh, proxies and partners. And uh, therefore, we're seeing, uh, you know, a fragmentation of uh, the control there. Wow. Okay. Um, you made something that I thought was incredibly complex. I mean, it is, but you've made it sound, uh, you've done a, an amazing job of that simplified synopsis. <laughs> the last thing I want to ask you, uh, aside from what you wanted to raise as well, was this, um, I want to do a little bit of a scenario planning here or scenario framing, which is increasingly I have been reading and hearing from other uh, professionals, policy individuals like yourself. Um, I'll bet you haven't said it, but others who are perhaps a little bit more uh, differently positioned in 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 that you know maybe we need to begin to take steps to in, in the acceptance or realization that the Iranians and the regime may well get hold of a of a nuclear warhead. You know what do you feel about that? And second, if that is if that were to come to fruition, what do you feel would be the best approach for not just the United States but any of the members of the uh, Iranian deal uh, to take? I, I, I don't think that that uh, is something that the United States can tolerate, uh, certainly not the state of Israel, and uh, I'm quite confident that they will do everything in their power uh, to prevent that from happening. So, uh, and by, all, by everything in their power, I mean uh, potentially the use of military force to prevent that uh, scenario from taking place. Iran uh, has been quietly testing international red lines for some time now. It has been enriching uh, uranium, uh, 
uh, to 60% now. It has made advances on uranium metal. It has crossed red lines without any consequence, I might add, that were once thought to be unthinkable and triggers for military action. If you ask some people 10 years ago, if a, what, what would be the international community's response if Iran were to start enriching uranium 60%, they would have said military action would have been on the table. So uh, it has crossed red line after red line. And uh, so Iran is gradually creeping out to developing this nuclear weapons capability. But I don't think uh, it, it's possible for the United States to be able to tolerate um, an Iranian regime with a nuclear weapon. It would radically alter uh, the uh, balance of power in the region. Uh, it would uh, make Iran, well, Iran would be able to deter much better uh, in terms of its own uh, proxy act proxy activities and be able to spread its power uh, across the region more effectively without fear of a response. And so the United States cannot let that happen. Whilst I appreciate the um, domino effect, the spillover effect that it would inevitably have, particularly with the Arab states and the likelihood that they would want to begin proliferation Mm -hmm. of their own. You know, what about the the scenario where they get one, but then we see sort of uh, a similar pattern to what the South Africans did and they, they, maybe we get a more moderate Iranian regime in. Uh, and then they are willing to sort of denuclearize, or you just think it's not even worth considering because the Americans would, in your eyes, seek to what undertake a military engagement or or, or campaign. I, so- I think that presidents of both parties, Democrat and Republican, have stated for years now that Iran will never be allowed to get a nuclear weapon. And uh, if the United States were to allow that happen, it would allow that to happen. It would be a huge blow to U.S. credibility. And uh, I, I think it would be uh, a very dark day for this country. So uh, I, I, I just can't imagine it happening. If it were to happen, I, I don't, you know, your, your question about, you know, hoping the Iranian leadership would, you know, moderate, uh, that's not going to happen. And, that, and that's under the current leadership, I'm saying, uh, with Ayatollah Khamenei. And we can also discuss succession. That's a topic I follow very closely in the Islamic Republic as well. Uh, you know, um, the way the current system is configured, there is no hope for uh, moderation, unfortunately. And uh, that's just uh, a reality that the international community has to deal with. All right. Well, well that means we'll just have to have a, another discussion with you, uh, maybe a, a two-parter uh, <laughs> in another episode of The Global Gambit. But all right, Jason, so that, I appreciate your, your time on that. And, and now what we're going to do is we're going to get in some, some audience uh, questions for the, for the final sort of second part or second segment of the, um, of the discussion. So Firstly, what I'd really like to do uh, is go to is go to Michael, uh, who's who's been helping me. He's a, he's Canadian. He's a lawyer. Um, Michael Bond. Uh, over to you, my good man. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jason. I appreciated the overview of uh, relations with several countries. Uh, Mike, I have two questions with regard to uh, Iranian relationship with Russia. Uh, the first is, I heard I think it was about two months ago that Russia was raising um, some new objections in the context of the JCPOA negotiation about concern that sanctions against them more broadly would apply to their trade with Iran under that agreement, uh, particularly in uh, nuclear fuels, nuclear technologies, and uh, that those objections might be delaying the talks. I'll admit I haven't heard an update on that front in the last few weeks. I'm wondering whether 
it, it's been resolved or if it has not been, uh, whether that's a significant stumbling block. I, I know, of course, there are other challenges to the negotiations as well. So that was question number one. Uh, and then question number two is Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov actually visited Iran earlier this week. And we, we've seen uh, occasional flights of Iranian cargo planes to Russia. Um, so there's clearly some bilateral trade continuing. I'm wondering whether you think Russia might be encouraging Iran to be a little bit more disruptive on the world stage, whether it be in Syria or, you know, in other uh, of its neighbors in an effort to uh, partly distract the West uh, in its focus right now on the Russian-Ukraine war. So those two questions were uh, JCPOA, encouraging disruption around the world. Thanks, Michael, for those questions. On your que- on your uh, one on the Russia sanctions demands, th- that that ha- seems to have been resolved uh, a few months ago. Uh, those th- those cre- creeped up uh, in March, I believe. And uh, at the time, Russia wanted to was saying that it wanted to use the JCPOA to protect its own economic interests because. Uh, it was seeing Iran was at the precipice of being able to end its own maximum pressure campaign, while at the same time, a maximum pressure campaign on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine was just beginning. And so Russia thought it could use the JCPOA as leverage to uh, extract concessions in this regard. But uh, it seems that uh, the U.S. and the E3 pushed back quite hard. Uh, on that. And I think that Iranians were even uh, behind the scenes uh, uh, recoiling uh, because of uh, the Russia's ability, desire to exploit the process. And so Russia has been quite quiet on the JCPOA ever since. Uh, And uh, while Iran uh, has uh, been uh, taking a maximalist stand, and I think Russia has been offering support for that maximalist stand, uh, so uh, that's uh, th- that's what happened with the the Russia sanctions on uh, on Aaron, your question about whether Russia is encouraging Iran to be more disruptive. I think it's encouraging maximalist stances. Uh, Iran, there have been some reports in Western media that Iran has been providing weaponry to Russia uh, for use in Ukraine. Uh, So that's a line of uh, inquiry to watch very closely. Uh, And uh, I assume Western intelligence agencies are doing that. In terms of Syria, we have seen increased uh, Iranian activity over the last year, not necessarily a function of the Ukraine situation. But what the Ukraine um, conflict is doing now is Russia is having to divert resources from theaters like Syria, and uh, Iran is moving to take over bases and uh, responsibilities as a result of that vacuum. And that's dangerous, and that can embolden Iranian activity in the region. And Russia, for that matter, is also making life, has the potential to make life for Israel more difficult in Syria as well, uh, because uh, of Israeli operations. And Russia was recent days, very highly critical publicly about uh, a recent Israeli strike uh, in Syria. So uh, we are seeing different pieces moving uh, uh, across the board as a result of the uh, Ukraine conflict. Great. Thanks a lot, Michael, for that question uh, and uh, and Jason for your comprehensive responses. All right. So um, next up, probably the last question we'll have for this uh, episode of the Global Gambit. I want to go to uh, Max Segal. He's uh, uh, a bit of a, a wonk on foreign policy uh, and has, uh, I think, I've heard him speak before uh, with a great degree of knowledge on the Middle East as well. So, Max, I'd love to get to you. 
Hi, thanks, Peter. Thanks, Jason. Very informative discussion. I have two questions. One is first about the politics of returning to the Iran deal. Uh, do you think that the politics have changed very much from the last time around under Obama? It, it seems that the uh, the hearing with, with uh, Special Envoy Malley was a bit underwhelming. A lot of Republican senators didn't even attend. Uh, Rand Paulson seemed to be trying to convince Malley to lift the IRGC designation. Tim Kaine was basically begging them to, you know, bring the bring the deal to Congress, let us bear the brunt of it. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, while Biden hasn't been willing to rejoin the deal, he also hasn't really forced the issue one way or another. He's been content to allow Iran to cross all of these, as you said, previously unthinkable nuclear red lines and enrich to an ability that they uh, have never seen before. And secondly, given that that is where we are and that we may be, by some estimates, only days away from Iran achieving breakout if they chose to do so, what exactly is, uh, from the perspective of, of groups that oppose rejoining the JCPOA, what is you know one week or three week, one month, whatever, what is the very short-term plan for stopping Iran from achieving breakout short of bombing uh, Iranian nuclear facilities? And if that is the plan, then why exactly is that uh, preferable to simply rejoining the deal uh, presuming that Iran is willing to do the same and uh, comply as they did before. Thank you. Thanks for those questions, Max. Uh, first, on the politics of returning to the JCPOA, I I think that uh, they are more or less the same, but uh, I, I have been always skeptical from the moment Joe Biden took office that he wanted to invest a lot of political capital in reviving this deal. And I think that the history of the last year has demonstrated that that was true. Uh, you know, there were some people who thought that the president would be willing to uh, lift the IRGC FTO designation, and he, uh, to his credit, has not been willing to do so. Uh, so, uh, I, and I think that that is the reality. I think this is a presidency that has a lot of other priorities uh, with China, Russia, inflation, a very closely divided Congress. And uh, I think that the there is a risk aversion uh, as it relates to Iran that I have noticed. The president very rarely personally speaks about Iran, and I think that that's interesting as well. Uh, so uh, that just monitoring those, reading those tea leaves uh, kind of signals that he does not want to invest the time and the energy that uh, uh, President Obama uh, did on the Iran file. On it relates to congressional politics, I think that there has been a little there has been a little more change I've detected, and that was in um, the vote um, May on uh, the non-binding vote uh, that had uh, you know obviously the, most of the Republican caucus sign on, uh, but uh, very uh, healthy number of Democrats as well. And this was not just the usual suspects of uh, Chuck Schu Chuck Schumer, Bob Menendez, uh, Ben Cardin, people uh, like that. You had 
supporters of the JCPOA uh, voting uh, in favor of uh, a more uh, robust Iran uh, policy. Uh, and uh, those were people like Kirsten Gillibrand and um, Richard Blumenthal, Ron Wyden, Catherine Cortez Mastro, uh, a new senator uh, who wasn't around when the JCPOA was originally inked, uh, Jackie Rosen, who was a new senator, also not around when the original JCPOA was inked. So I think that the policy, politics have changed. I think that they want to see a more robust, comprehensive policy, uh, not just waiting for the Iranians on the JCPOA. So there has been a a change in that uh, sense uh, that I've noticed. As it relates to the plan, I think that the U.S. needs a deterrence strategy, and it needs a deterrence strategy whether there's a return to the nuclear deal or not a deterrent for the nuclear deal. Uh, The president has not said specifically, like Barack Obama did in 2013, that a military option is on the table. He needs to say that. And uh, hopefully his trip to Israel will give him an opportunity to do so. I think the United States should be doing military exercises with Israel to simulate strikes on Iran's nuclear infrastructure. I think uh, we should be transferring weaponry to the Israel like the massive ordnance penetrator that uh, would also increase our own deterrence uh, and show the Iranians that we are serious. I think the United States needs to be forcefully pushing back in the region. All of this figures into the calculation in the Iranian leadership over which red lines to cross. I think the United States needs to be more aggressive uh, in uh, enforcement of the sanctions that are on the books. Uh, To the administration's credit, they have started in that direction. We saw uh, a a week or so ago, uh, there was the first tranche of sanctions that were um, uh, geared towards enforcement. And just today, there was a new round of sanctions. And what makes these sanctions different from the Uh, previous rounds of sanctions that the Biden administration has employed as they were tied to Executive Order 13846, which would be lifted under a return to the nuclear deal. The Biden administration's previous sanctions were not, were were tied to uh, authorities that would stay on the books if there would be a return to the nuclear deal. So this is a signal, and I think that uh, all of those robust Uh, tools would uh, be useful to uh, deter the Iranians. And I also think Europe needs to do a hell of a lot more here, uh, other than releasing statements after statements. Uh, That doesn't move Iranian decision-making. Europe has only uh, levied two rounds of sanctions since 2013 on the Iranian leadership, despite having authority to impose non-nuclear sanctions. Uh, And uh, the United States needs to press the Europeans to get more in the game here, too, as to increasing the pressure on the Iranians. And, uh, you know, and as I I speak for someone who, as someone who wants to find a way forward that is sustainable, uh, a bipartisan way forward. Uh, it's, it's absolutely necessary. I think those who think, who laugh at, you know, bipartisanship, uh, you know, these days see, unfortunately, major international agreements collapse uh, with the turn of a presidency. And that's not something uh, that uh, is, is durable for the United States in the long run. So we need to have a domestic consensus here as to what the parameters of a good deal with the Islamic Republic would be. And uh, I think the United States would be on a more firmer footing. Great. Thanks a lot there, uh, Max, for that great final question. And um, Jason, for, you know, I think a pretty fair um, uh, answer there. You know, on the sanctions front, I think it's 
I don't know if you'd agree with me, Jason, but in some ways it was the the Swiss sanctions of what 2011, 2012 that in some ways incentivized or coerced the Iranians to come to the table to even begin the negotiations. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no doubt about it. But let's let the Iranians are not under that degree of pressure uh, today. So uh, that's that's been the uh, difference. No, absolutely. And as we've seen, uh, sanctions are only as effective as they are well implemented. And you have to judge them by the original objectives that they're, they're set. And that's why these swift sanctions imposed on the Russians are a little bit lax because they're not targeting every single major Russian bank, which allows those that aren't sanctioned to act as intermediaries for the ones that are to still, um, uh, well, transfer money and assets. So, but that's a discussion for another time. Jason, I really want to thank you for your time and and great insights as always. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Before we round up this episode of the Global Gambit, are there any final takeaways you'd like to leave us with? Any Anywhere that you know people can reach out to you on engage with your work, that sort of thing? Well, I'm always on Twitter. Uh, I'm an avid Iran watcher, so most people will know me from uh, my uh, uh, Twitter feed on, on that sense. And I uh, write a lot on Iran as well. So uh, all of that is uh, posted there. And please check out Yuani's uh, work as well. We do a lot of tanker tracking uh, and uh, business risk work. Uh, but uh, I, I would say one thing. I, I think that what this long experience with the JCPOA has taught us is I think the United States needs to focus on getting a domestic consensus in order as to what the parameters of a good deal with Iran would be. Uh, And uh, we have not been able to do that. And we need to focus more on that uh, in the months ahead. Uh, And I would also say that, uh, you know, we need to be careful about viewing everything that happens in Iran as solely a reaction to U.S. policy or Israeli uh, operations. They play a role, no doubt, but they are not everything that happens uh, in Iran. Iran has agency. Uh, The Iranian leadership is very complex. Uh, What happened, as some of you may have known, that uh, Iran uh, removed its longtime head of the IRGC's intelligence organization, Hossein Tayeb. Uh, And uh, he uh, was a very powerful player in the Iranian system by virtue of his relationship with the Supreme Leader's influential son, Moshtaba Khamenei. But but what some of these uh, operations do is they aggravate the pre-existing fissures within the Iranian leadership. And there is a change in in that respect. But there is is a lot of politics in Iran, no doubt. But uh, the decision-making on foreign policy and national security is pretty unitary in my view. Uh, And uh, we just need to be able to understand better what happens in that system, who the real power lies with. It's not the president, it's the supreme leader. The president is the implementer in chief. Uh, And uh, I I think that uh, that will be important for the Western perspective moving forward. Much obliged, Jason. And uh, and I agree with you. I think the uh... The internal domestic situation of the U.S. particularly, but also I think a, a large array of the other countries, I mean, not even getting started on Russia, is going to be a factor. But um, I want to thank everybody, those of you uh, listening live in Twitter spaces, but those of you also who listen to this on the podcast, uh, and particularly to my patrons who make this possible, uh, and those of you like James Chambers particularly as well. So appreciate everyone for, for joining us, for listening, and I look forward to seeing you in another episode of The Global Gambit. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.